0: Majority will legislation.
1: I will fight That's like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will.
2: Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now, I'm Dan Clark. We are now four weeks into this year's legislative session, and one topic continues to dominate the conversation in Albany. That's crime, and more specifically, bail reform. We've had that law for two years now, and it requires judges to release people without bail on most lower level and nonviolent charges. Supporters of the law point to a double standard in the criminal justice system, one that allows people with money to be released, but leaves those without behind bars. And since the law took effect, crime has gone up in New York, and opponents of the law have tried to link those two things, saying bail reform has caused the rise in crime and should therefore either be tweaked Or scrapped altogether. But we don't really know if that's true or if we're just riding the national crime wave. There is some data out there, but there's been no nonpartisan analysis to see if it's cause or just coincidence. So for now, it's a lot of politics. And Governor Kathy Hochul said this week that's not going to change her position.
0: If reforms are needed based on data that is still being gathered, I'm willing to have those conversations. I don't feel just because people, for political reasons, like the individuals that you're quoting here today, want me to give an answer, that's not how I operate. I don't cave to pressure. I do what's right based on all the facts that come before me.
2: And until then, Hochul didn't have a lot to say on this, saying she'd leave it up to the legislature. But that came to a head this week, when lawmakers said they weren't going to budge. Daryl Camp is here with more. Daryl,
3: That's right, Dan. Leaders from both the state Senate and the state assembly said this week that they had no plans to change bail reform. Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty, who has made criminal justice a top priority in the past few years, said the law was being used as a scapegoat for the rising crime.
4: Part of my frustration is. Anything bad that happens, it's got to be bail reform's fault, and I just think it's unfortunate to link the the rise in, in gun violence you know, solely on bail.
3: There have been proposals that would keep bail reform the same, but give judges the option to hold someone in jail if they think that they're a threat to public safety. But on the other side of the Capitol, Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins shot down that idea, saying it would be a step back to before bail reform. We cannot
0: pretend that there has not been judges discretion and that that discretion uh, has led to. Uh, in some cases, in many cases, nationally, not just here, to a um, disparity of who
3: gets held, who doesn't get held. That might not sit well with judges in criminal court. During a budget hearing at the State Capitol this week, Chief Administrative Judge Lawrence Marks was asked if he thought that judges would like more discretion on the bench. Here's what he
1: said. Judges who handle criminal cases um, would, would favor having more discretion. Now, having said that, um, are they able to carry out their duties and their functions under the, um, the current um, uh, bail reform legislation? Yes, absolutely.
3: So it doesn't look like changes are coming to the law anytime soon. But that doesn't mean the door is closed. We will take a much deeper look into the issue of bail reform and violent crime as a whole in New York on next week's edition of New York Now.
2: Thanks, Daryl. Looking forward to it. In the meantime, the clock is ticking on this year's legislative session. We're already at the end of the first month, and lawmakers are only here until early June. So they've got to figure out what they're going to do this year, and fast. Republicans hold the minority in the legislature, but they're already out with a proposal that they say could help New Yorkers with the rising cost of inflation. For that and more, I spoke this week with Assembly Republican Leader Will Barclay. Assembly Republican Leader Will Barclay, thank you for being here.
4: Thanks for having me on, Dan.
2: Of course, anytime. So you have a new proposal out this week that you say could help New Yorkers with the rising cost of inflation. Of course, we've seen inflation go up nationwide at levels that we haven't seen here in decades. Your proposal, you say, would help consumers afford the higher cost of goods. Can you tell me a little bit about it?
4: Yeah, well, to tell you the truth, it's sad to say, but I can remember back in the late 70s or early 80s when we had the same level of inflation. I think we have inflation at seven or 8%. And the effect it has on the middle class and lower middle class paychecks really is uh, terrible. In fact, if you recall back in the 70s and the 80s, I think that's one of the reasons Reagan beat Carter was because of inflation. So a lot of people say, well, you can't do much on the state. And I disagree. Uh, We haven't heard a lot about it on the state. But one thing that we can do is take the sales tax off of uh, items like gasoline, which inflation has affected something like 50%. Food items outside the home, they've increased 13% and heating uh, fuel is increasing like 30%. So if we can take the sales tax, that would provide immediate relief uh, to New Yorkers. And we have the money now in New York to be able to do that.
2: Now, when you say food outside the home, are you talking about uh, grocery stores? Or are you talking about restaurants? What's included in that?
4: Well, it would be restaurants, takeout food, obviously you don't pay sales tax on a lot of the items in the grocery store, so food that you would normally pay uh, sales tax on.
2: Okay. So I can imagine, because sales tax is a big revenue raiser for local governments, so how would this impact them in terms of their budgeting? Could we see some shortfall there, or have you worked out the numbers and maybe it's not so much of a dent?
4: Well, we're talking about state sales tax, not local sales tax. Ah, so we don't okay. want to be talking about taking off the state sales tax. And according to our numbers, it would be about, I think, $2.6 billion. We're saying a two-year suspension. So we're talking you know, about $5 billion, a little over $5 billion, which would be the cost. But... You know, we, as I said, budgetarily, as you know, you heard probably the governor's speech about we're doing pretty well from a, a budget standpoint in the state. And this is something we feel we uh, we agree with her when she's talking about doing middle-class tax cuts and some other types of tax cuts, property tax cuts out into the future, but which is helpful and we support those. But this is something we can do immediately to help New Yorkers who are struggling with inflation.
2: Okay. So, you know, when we talk about efforts like this, we all always come back to the property taxes in New York. And I think we talk about the exodus from New York all the time. We don't so much talk about the reasons why people are leaving, because I think there's a disagreement between a lot of people about why people are leaving, between is it the property taxes, is it the income taxes? Some people say it's the weather, which, you know, sure, I'm sure that some people do leave because of the weather. but. Let's talk about property taxes for a second because I know that you've thought about this as somebody who is from upstate New York. How do you think the state could really reduce these property taxes for people or at least keep them level? We've had the property tax cap, the governor's proposing the rebate. Do you think that goes far enough or would you like to see things go farther?
4: well first of all we gotta stop mandating stuff on local governments that's what's generating the cost whether it's mandated on school districts or mandated on local governments so it's causing our property taxes increase you're right we did put a cap on i think that's a smart move we capped the local share of medicaid that was the right move one thing we could do is maybe take over the full share of medicaid and that would certainly provide a great relief to county governments Uh, then they wouldn't have to charge so much in property taxes. The other thing is school aid, the school aid formula, you know, has always been a little inequitable. Uh, We're sending a lot of school aid to high wealth school districts versus low wealth school districts. You know, I represent a lot of rural areas that don't have high property values. So they don't have anywhere to go uh, when they have to raise money because they're mandated to do certain services and programs. Uh, So if we could provide those schools more money, they wouldn't have to rely on property taxes to try to, you know, Cover their shortfalls. And I'm sure that issue
2: is going to come up in the budget. And another issue that we're expecting to come up this year in some way, shape, or form is ethics reform in Albany after everything with former Governor Cuomo last year. And obviously, we've seen just decades of corruption at the state capitol. What do you think should be done here? Your conference has been really outspoken on ethics reform in the past, some at the level of just at the chamber level, but also at the statewide level. How can we clean up Albany? I know it's a big question, but <laughs> give me your right. your brief argument well, here. I,
4: I think the governor is right in one respect that Jacob probably isn't the right vehicle to continue. As you know, it's been joke, called jokingly "J joke." What what I don't necessarily agree with the governor is she's suggesting. That I guess the deans of the law schools make up this ethics panel. You know, I, I don't know what makes the deans qualified or why they would be, other than they have a legal background. Uh, so I, I would rather just see if it was a true bipartisan um, organization. I think that's how they do it. They do that in other areas, and I think they've had better success in um, covering uh, you know any kind of misdeeds. I would, I would mention this, Dan. One of the challenges we have with ethics, you know, I once served on the Legislative Ethics Committee. I served on the Assembly Ethics Committee. We have the DA that has jurisdiction us. We have the Board of Election that has DA. We have local DAs and, you know, back home. And you have the U.S. attorney. So there's a lot of bodies that could prosecute wrongdoing. Ultimately, the legislators have to understand, or anyone acting in government, that you don't do this to enrich yourself. You do it to try to make the state better and try to help your constituents and move things forward. And I, I you know, that message sometimes gets lost, I think, and we just have to keep pushing that. But ultimately, as we all know, there should be an oversight body. There should be someone that looks into ethics. And I, again, I think if it's done in a bipartisan manner, you'll get a more honest type of organization or body.
2: Your conference in the past has called for term limits for the speakership in the assembly. That hasn't happened, the the assembly leadership, the Democrats haven't agreed to that. I know that they don't wanna do it. The governor's proposed term, term limits for statewide elected officials. So we're talking about governor, LG, controller, and AG. What do you think about that? Is that the right move?
4: Uh, I don't think it's a bad idea. I think it's going to have a hard time passing uh, in the legislature. I think I heard the speaker already come out and say he doesn't support any type of term limits. But I do think there's something to it. I mean, we saw what happened with the last governor who started off with a very promising administration. A lot of stuff, even as a Republican, I could get behind. But as he moved, I guess, consolidated power and moved further in his career, you saw him, I think, was taking more risk and really became, I think he felt a lot that he was above any kind of accountability, and so that's where term limits, I think, would play an important role and certainly would have been important when it came to the last administration.
2: All right. Well, we will see how it plays out. It's a really interesting proposal and one that hasn't come up in recent years, certainly, so we'll see. Assembly Republican Leader Will Barclay, thank you so much.
4: Thank you, Dan. Good talking to you. So
2: we'll see where all that goes in the next few months until lawmakers leave Albany for the year in June. Let's get into the week's news now with this week's panel. Zach Williams is from City and State, and Yancy Roy is from Newsday. Thank you both for being here. Sure, thank you. So the big topic that I want to talk about is redistricting. So we got some news this week that the Independent Redistricting Commission basically called it quits. They, they didn't come to an agreement with each other. This is a commission that has one side that's Democrat appointed, one side that's Republican appointed. So I guess we shouldn't be that surprised that there was gridlock. So now lawmakers say that they're going to pass their own set of maps next week. Yancey, what are we expecting out of this? This is a big undertaking to redraw districts and we're losing a congressional district. So it's not just kind of like tweaking the lines here and there?
1: Right. I think that there's a couple of things to know. One is that despite the fact that there was a commission and it was going through the public uh, process of trying to come up with maps, there's always been a legislative task force on redistricting. They've had the same data that the commission has had since September. They have traditionally drawn the lines. It's been their role. I imagine they've been working on this pretty much since September. Um, so they are ready to go with their own versions of the maps and we, it was announced basically as soon as the commission went out that they were going to see maps, uh, this weekend. I think that the Senate and the assembly are, you know, there'll be tweaks here and there in districts and, and not a lot of differences for people, maybe some important swing districts on Long Island. The real game is Congress mm-hmm. and it's because New York is part of a national fight. For control of congress and you know you've got uh, we've seen all sorts of stories in republican controlled states uh, in the south mainly north carolina and georgia and whatever about redistricting they're doing there where republicans are trying to add republican seats i think so the big thing folks are looking for here is democrats really trying to use their leverage to draw districts to really bolster the number of democrats in the new york delegation so that the party has a better chance at controlling Congress this fall. That's the big story.
2: Do we know where the seat comes from, the the one that we're losing? Does it, do we lose it upstate? I, we had, it's almost assured. Yeah. yeah, we had the chair of the commission on in October, September, that area, and he said it was gonna be upstate. Do, do, we probably don't know where
1: upstate though. Uh, we don't know where until we see the maps, but it's almost completely assured that it will be because A, uh upstate has not gained population. That's the same as downstate. And B, again, Democrats control this. The Republican seats are generally upstate. It's gonna there's some Republicans who have already said they're not running again. Um so it's just a, a natural take that um it's one of those Republican districts is gonna get swallowed up. In the past, when New York lost two state seats, rather at a time, it was always sort of a gentleman's agreement that one the each party would lose one seat and that's mm-hmm. how it worked out in sort of backroom deals now it's just one seat democrats control the process there's like ninety nine point nine percent chance that it's going to be a republican seat that is swallowed up
2: so zach there have been uh, you know rumors from republicans who say that since democrats are controlling this process now they control both the senate and the assembly so they're going to be passing the new maps there's uh, Republicans republican said they're going to use this as a way to uh, gain ground both uh, you know, in Congress and in the state legislature. Do we see any indication of that being true? What, what do we know about that?
5: the process can only disadvantage the republicans particularly in the state senate sucks to be them 10 years after they <laughs> gerrymandered the state senate now it's going to it's just a matter of how bad it will be for them you know we don't have a lot of indications about the specifics of what's going to happen with the state senate but needless to say it will benefit the democrats something that will be very interesting though is that democrats have had super majorities in the state senate and assembly since the 2020 elections Um, biggest majorities, I think, in like a century or something. And this will be the first time that they actually matter. They haven't haven't, um, pushed back at all at the executive on any vetoes, overriding them, but they will need a two-thirds margin to pass their redistricting plans. In the Senate, where there's only 44 Democrats and you need 42 votes, Maybe, just maybe two or three Democrats could raise a little bit of trouble, but my suspicion is that, in the end, they're going to vote in lockstep for a redistricting plan that's going to benefit them in the Assembly, the state Senate, and in Congress, which has national implications.
2: I mean, do we know how many seats they could really gain by redistricting in the Senate? A memo that was
5: circulated online this week that was attributed to Sean Patrick Maloney, the representative from the Hudson Valley, who chairs the Democratic uh, Congressional Campaign Committee. Um, had was floating a 24-to-2 map. That means that Republicans would lose quite a few seats and just two of them would survive, most likely Chris Jacobs in western New York and Elise mm. Stefanik in the north country. That means the only Republican in New York City, Nicole Malliotakis, is probably going to face a tough uh, challenge to get reelected because they're going to move the Brooklyn part of her district to lower Manhattan, which really favors the Democrats.
2: Oh, wow. And she... Is this her first term in Congress or is this her second term? I don't remember when she... Believe it or not, she's drums. only been
5: in Congress one term. Feels wow. like a lifetime, but this will be a real key test of just how strong the Republicans are in New York City after a pretty friendly 2021
2: election cycle. So we'll see how that works out. Uh, Yancey, I want to turn back to you. So we saw former Assembly Speaker Sheldon Silver pass away this week in prison. Tell me a little bit about what his legacy is going to look like. Uh, you know now that he's gone. He had a tumultuous time as speaker. He, I don't, was he the longest serving speaker he in history? He almost made the record. Almost, just <laughs> under not, the if wire. If not for the
1: indictment, he probably would have made it, but exactly.
2: yeah. Exactly, <laughs> and the end of his his uh, time there was really, uh, poisoned with a lot of, uh, you know, he protected some lawmakers that were accused of sexual harassment from right. allegations. He was uh, convicted on corruption charges. Uh, how will people remember Sheldon Silver?
1: I, sometimes it'll depend a little bit how, whatever his actions personally affected you or your community, perhaps. I mean, look, the, he, he was in place more than 20 years. Uh, as you mentioned, second longest speaker in the assembly history. And there's so many ways to, like, look at this so many angles. I mean, start from the folks who championed him. He was, he was the democratic face of any opposition of uh, Republican domination during the Pataki years. And during that time, he successfully pushed for a lot of things that Democrats want, uh, pre-kindergarten expansion, uh, more money for education, more money for colleges, uh, uh, some environmental programs. He was the, the champion of liberal causes for all of that. Uh, But as you said, on the other side, there's so many things that detract from that, especially the ending. He was convicted in a corruption scam, um, essentially steering money through his law firm to get kickbacks is sort of the short term there, short answer there. Uh, The cover up of Vito Lopez's sexual harassment cases and the secret settlements and how that kind of resulted in changes on how the, the assembly and the state handles those. Um, so there's a lot of mixed bag there for how people can look back over his 20-plus years as a, as a powerful figure in New York politics.
2: And then, of course, in 2015, replaced by Carl Hasty as the assembly speaker, and he's remained in that post since. I did want to get to the mask mandate, but we are out of time, unfortunately. <laughs> Zach Williams from City and State, Yancy Roy from Newsday, thank you both so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. So as we've told you, housing is expected to be another big issue in Albany this year. Governor Hochul wants a five-year, $25 billion housing plan, and part of it would expand supportive housing. Just for those who don't know, supportive housing has services on-site for tenants with certain needs, like those with a chronic illness or an addiction or a family that was recently homeless. We've got the details of Hochul's plan this week and what it would mean for supportive housing with Laura Michoud from the Supportive Housing Network of New York. Laura, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Dan, for having me. Of
2: course. So we're talking about supportive housing, which is something that a lot of people don't know a lot about. The governor is proposing 7,000 new supportive housing units in her executive budget. She also wants to rehab 3,000 existing units. I'm wondering from your perspective, is that enough or do we need to go farther with that?
0: Well, I think it's an incredible investment and these resources will absolutely take us a, a long way. The other thing that's amazing about it is that it's a five-year housing plan so that we can really have the predictability as developers of supportive and affordable housing to know that the money will be there year after year, which is very important. And of course, the need is great, always. Uh, We do have an affordable and a homelessness crisis, Um, but I do think that this will get us well on our way Um, And the governor is really doing more than the previous administration by adding the preservation units, which is also wonderful.
2: So tell me about where the need is here. So in terms of supportive housing, we're talking about people that are transitioning from being homeless. So where do we target these units? Is it mostly, are we looking at New York City mostly, or is it spread out across the state? What would have the best impact?
0: So great question. Um, We absolutely have more of a homelessness crisis in the city. Uh, Not not surprising. It's a it's a larger population, but we also do have a problem uh, with affordable housing and homelessness rest of state. So this program, uh, the supportive housing program that's been going for the last five years, has developed a sufficient number of upstate uh, buildings, which has been fabulous because it's the first time that the supportive housing program was actually statewide. So Governor Hochul is continuing that. And, you know, we look forward to working with those upstate communities to continue to develop um, supportive and affordable housing.
2: You know, when we look at big-picture goals here, homelessness is obviously a problem. It feels like a perennial problem. How do we get to the heart of it with this supportive housing? Do we need to go beyond that 7,000 in the out years? Do we need to build on top of that? Or is this, part, is this bigger five-year plan that we're talking about, is this enough to really tackle the homelessness crisis that we have going on right now?
0: Right, so this first five years is incredibly important. Um, but we need to continue having one after the other five-year housing plans, and I do think now that we've set the tone, um, just finishing the previous five-year plan, and now we've one that I think really this governor and any governor thereafter will really want to invest in a five-year housing plan because the affordability crisis and the homelessness crisis is not easily going away, and so affordable and supportive housing are absolutely key to uh, to address both of those issues.
2: So the unique part about supportive housing is you have these direct services providers right on site. The governor is proposing a 5.4% cost of living adjustment increase, which for people that aren't familiar, it's basically more funding to raise their salaries and retain staff because we have this problem in the human services sector where people just aren't paid enough. So they go on to other jobs with comparable salaries or even other jobs that are low stress and have the, the same salary. So with this 5.4% increase, do you think that's enough to keep this industry afloat? Can we retain these workers through that increase? Uh,
0: another great question. The, the 5.4% is is amazing. We were, we were very, very happy to see that in the executive budget. And you know, really our workforce was an essential workforce during the pandemic. And we need to show that workforce that we are investing in them, that we appreciate the work that they're doing. And so this increase will go a long way, but we also need repeated increases every year because costs go up and we need to be able to retain our staff and we don't want them once trained and working with us and having relationships with our tenants and our clients to then go off to another job because they can get paid you know, more money there. So it's very important that we really invest and recognize the work of, of the human services sector.
2: It's a, it's a big undertaking for these providers. I have to imagine it's stressful. When you talk about these increases that you want every year for them, do you have a ballpark number or does it depend on the year? With a 5.4%, we're talking about that's cost of living, so that's kind of based on inflation, but is there a percent or an amount that we should be increasing every year or should lawmakers and the governor play that by ear?
0: Yes, good question. So I really feel that we need to have a consistent uh, increase every year, and I think the target of five percent would be very helpful. It would also give the sector the predictability that they would be um, able to budget for that and tell staff that that would be the case, that they could give them increases. Like we're going to need to have, you know, anywhere from a three to five percent increase every year. Uh, just to keep the sector going. Um, and as you know, we really have a lot of vacancies in a number of sectors right now, and the nonprofits have not been spared, and it is a tough, stressful job. So if we're gonna keep the staff, we ne- really need to keep competitive with our salaries.
2: It's a big problem, not just for supportive housing, but for all human services administrators across the state. They've been calling for increases for years, and maybe we'll see that happen in this year's budget. but. We'll leave it there, Laura Mashu from the Supportive Housing Network of New York. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Dan.
2: And the state budget hearing on housing is Monday. We'll keep our eyes out for any news there. Until then, thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.